From a prototype first-person game engine to revered trilogy, Metroid Prime is a name that goes hand-in-hand -hand with Nintendo's legendary repertoire. It convinced the world of what Metroid could be capable of in three dimensions, and left an astounding impact on game design, fans of the series, and even those that were new to Metroid. It made a name for Retro Studios, a team that is now one of Nintendo's most cherished first-party developers, and it brought the franchise back to life. I'm not saying anything new here. The Metroid Prime games are some of the most important games to be released in the 2000s for many reasons, most of them being common knowledge. But how did this happen? How did a brand new development studio manage to string together a series of fantastic video games? How has Metroid Prime influenced game design? In what ways do the games attempt to captivate the player? Why are they still so unique to this day? And above all else, why do we love Metroid Prime? These questions have answers, both from objective and subjective standpoints. And I am, well, just another creator on this website giving you my opinion. But I've tried to throw together a comprehensive video on some of my favorite games of all time. In this video, we'll be examining the development of the Metroid Prime trilogy, its design and adaptations of the franchise's elements, its impact and legacy, its highs and lows, and what was left unfinished or unattempted in the end. If you've just signed up for the Federation or you've been a bounty hunter for years, this video should have something of interest for you. Discussion is both how we remember Metroid Prime and how we shape its future. So with that said, let's jump in. I'm Liam Triforce and this is a Metroid Prime Trilogy Retrospective. In 1994, Super Metroid was released and defined an entire subgenre of action-adventure games. Despite its limited resources, the game is a timeless experience. Its level design, despite being the first established attempt at a Metroidvania, is impeccably refined and complements many different approaches to exploration. Its scripted sequences gave the world an exciting glimpse into the prospect of video game storytelling. It could feel desolate, intriguing, and scary. Kenji Yamamoto managed to create some of the best music the Super Nintendo sound chip could handle, and really toyed with the concept of what Metroid music should sound like. He brought the game's atmosphere to new heights, and combined with everything else, it made for a game that felt amazing to explore and fight through. A few years later, Castlevania Symphony of the Night came out. The two of them made damn sure that the subgenre we now know as Metroidvania would stick around. It was a malleable format for a video game. You could build almost anything out of something that pushed freedom to explore and memorization of layout. So, it's curious that a new Metroid game wouldn't be released for another eight years. Perhaps Super Metroid was a bit too amazing. Shortly after Super Metroid's release, the world was made aware of Nintendo's next console, the Ultra 64. 
It was to compete with the PlayStation and Sega Saturn, and with Super Mario 64 completely mopping the floor with other 3D games thanks to its analog control stick and full freedom of movement, it was only natural to expect other Nintendo franchises to join the fray. And oh did they ever. The Nintendo 64 is held in high esteem for a reason. Zelda, F-Zero, and Star Fox all had series-defining games on the system. Mario Kart received a complete overhaul. There were even some new faces. Rareware completely dominated the N64 with Banjo-Kazooie, Diddy Kong Racing, Goldeneye, Perfect Dark, and more. The iconic Mario Party series first got its start here. Paper Mario, Turok, Wave Race 64, Kirby 64, Doom 64. I could go on. All of these incredible games. And yet, Metroid was a no-show throughout the console's entire lifespan. The thing is, Nintendo had every intention of making a Metroid game for the Nintendo 64. Why wouldn't they? The series had finally received worldwide recognition in the industry for what Super Metroid had accomplished. But they ran into some big creative hurdles in conceptualizing a game for the system. While they haven't gone into specifics, Yoshio Sakamoto, the director of Super Metroid, did once state that he couldn't imagine how Samus would control with the Nintendo 64 controller. At the time, 3D video games were only just becoming a reality. It would be a long and arduous process for video games to adapt their conventions in design and storytelling into 3D. Super Mario 64 used its analog control to define platforming in a 3D space. Ocarina of Time invented the Z-targeting system in order to alleviate frustration when dealing with enemies in 3D, etc. Metroid would need a complete overhaul in control, accommodations in three-dimensional map design, some bosses that take advantage of the Z-axis, essentially buckling down and talking logistics, which is something that they didn't have time to seriously brainstorm. All of the company's big players were busy with other projects, and the Metroid team had drifted apart as a result. Sakamoto-san didn't know what to do, but what about the others? Well, Satoru Ukada, one of the key designers for Metroid, began overseeing hardware development at Nintendo. Aside from Pokemon Stadium, developer Makoto Kano only had a hand in a few of Nintendo's projects after the year 2000. There was one person on the original Metroid team who may have been able to solve this dilemma. Gunpei Yokoi was instrumental in Nintendo's early years of game development. He created the Game & Watch line of systems as well as the Game Boy, supervised Donkey Kong in 1981, co-developed Mario Brothers in 1983, as well as Metroid and Kid Icarus a few years later, and pioneered the cross-shaped directional pad. If there were ever a person to figure out how Samus could function in 3D, it'd be him. Unfortunately, he left Nintendo in 1996 after the failure of the Virtual Boy, and he was tragically killed in a car accident one year later. With the team splitting up and funneling their creativity into other games, Metroid was left in limbo. Nintendo eventually caved and approached an undisclosed development studio about creating a Metroid game for the Nintendo 64. Naturally, this would be a huge opportunity for any developer, but it also carried a lot of pressure. If Nintendo were to let down Metroid fans, they could absorb the blow and try again later. However, for an up-and-coming development studio, this was a make-it-or-break-it kind of project. Rather than taking the risk, they declined to develop the game, stating that they didn't think they could top Super Metroid. During this lull, a new development studio was being formed in the heart of Texas. Iguana Entertainment were killing it on the N64 at the time with the highly acclaimed Turok series. Nintendo remained supportive of the team's efforts and the companies eventually developed a partnership. Iguana founder Jeff Spangenberg eventually left the company in order to form a new studio and work hand-in-hand -hand with Nintendo. Enter Retro Studios a new development team devoted to creating games for a mature audience on Nintendo's next console, in order to mirror Turok's success. Throughout 1999, the studio worked on multiple projects, an RPG called Ravenblade, 
a football simulator called NFL Retro Football, a car combat game akin to Twisted Metal, and an action-adventure game that only had a prototype engine and some concept art lying around. None of these projects really impressed Nintendo, and things began to fall behind schedule despite their workforce constantly expanding. In 2000, Shigeru Miyamoto visited Retro Studios. Like the other Nintendo executives, he was disappointed in how things were turning out. That is, until he saw their action-adventure game engine. It was a rudimentary first-person engine that could be used for anything, really. And despite not being fond of the other projects at Retro, something about that first-person engine gave him an idea. Sometime later, Nintendo and Retro were deliberating on what was next for the studio. Supposedly out of nowhere, Miyamoto-san said, How about Metroid? He suggested using the first-person engine to create a Metroid game. From there, things began to cohere for Retro. After receiving some valuable feedback, their initial test for a Metroid game in that engine convinced Shigeru Miyamoto to hand the studio the Metroid license, and the clock began to tick. This all occurred shortly before Space World 2000, where Nintendo would officially reveal the GameCube. There were a few demonstrations for games that could potentially appear on the console, but of course, some of them were just technical showcases. With that said, Nintendo's eagerness to show anything for Metroid after eight years of silence is bold and it garnered a ton of attention. Nintendo must have had a great deal of confidence in Retro despite their troubled beginnings. So much so that Nintendo confirmed a GameCube Metroid game was in development shortly after Space World, and it was expected to be playable at E3 2001. But public reception from here on out wasn't entirely favorable. It soon became public knowledge that the next Metroid game would be a first-person shooter, and people were skeptical on how that would fit the series, especially after early gameplay was revealed. But the truth is, Retro was going to great lengths to make sure it didn't feel like your average first-person shooter. Metroid didn't become famous for its platforming elements. It was revered for its exploration. And that same philosophy is what drove Retro back then. Here's some insight from Retro CEO Michael Kelbaugh on the matter. Making a first-person shooter would have been a cheap and easy way to go. But making sure the themes and concepts in Metroid were kept was something that we wanted to do and translating those things into 3D was a real challenge. For example, translating the Morph Ball was one of the hardest things to do. The Morph Ball was a crucial turning point in the game's development. In addition to first person, Retro also experimented with a third person perspective, but several people, including Miyamoto-san, corroborated on the fact that it was too clunky to shoot enemies from this angle. The Morph Ball pulling the camera out of Samus's body stuck, however, and Retro fleshed out the physics engine as best they could. Eventually, producer Kensuke Tanabe found out how the ball was controlled, and he saw how it was interacting with the world. Going through tubes, solving mazes, boosting in halfpipes, and ramping up to a new area, etc. At that moment, he knew Retro had something special. The team continued to grapple with the game's camera, blend of perspectives, level design, and combat. It was really tough, and they were crunching hard right up to Nintendo's firm deadline of Christmas 2002. Mind you, they were working this hard against the contempt the Metroid fanbase held for this project. It didn't feel like any of this was going to work out from an outsider's perspective, even though Nintendo remained supportive of the studio. Retro Studios even went through a few layoffs during the game's development, and things were looking grim. Then the reviews came out. Yeah. Yeah. Metroid Prime was released on November 17th, 2002 in North America. To near-unanimous acclaim, on the same day as an all-new original 2D Metroid, Fusion. Both games took the world by storm and Metroid fans rejoiced. The series was back, and it was here to stay. Now, let's take a look at Retro Studios' debut title.
My name is Samus Aaron. It's been ten years since I destroyed Mother Brain and left the Space Pirate stronghold in ruins. I recently intercepted a distress signal from a remote Space Pirate frigate. Upon investigating the source, I've discovered what they were researching and how they met their fate. A radioactive substance known as Phazon has mutated or killed all remaining entities on Talon IV. And at the heart of it all, is the result of extreme phazon mutation. Metroid Prime. One of Metroid's defining characteristics is the first impression it leaves on the player. Since the very beginning, that has been apparent. Upon turning on the original Metroid, you hear this foreboding melody, followed by a descent into hope and intrigue. This melody would forever capture the essence of Metroid. Horror, mystery, exploration, confrontation. Something of Metroid's caliber was brand new to the medium in 1986, so this title screen and its concept alone were enough to leave a lasting impact on the industry. Super Metroid expands on this exponentially, however. You have these grim pans over a dimly lit research lab as Metroid shrieks can be heard over the disturbing music piece. Then the title screen fades in and you process the dead scientist, the baby Metroid, and the return of Metroid's most important melody. Super Metroid's first impression doesn't end with the title screen, though. Its first moments take you through the remains of the research station, getting used to the controls and navigation, until you come face to face with Ridley, perched atop the baby Metroid's container. You're then asked to fight hopelessly against this colossal beast, before the research station initiates its self-destruct sequence and you need to get the heck out of there. The rest of the game has you preparing for the rematch. The intro sets up the game's narrative, key mechanics, and the goal that you'll be working towards as you explore Planet Zebus. It's an inviting, fast-paced way of introducing the player to the world of Super Metroid. The series would continue to build upon the strong foundation of Super Metroid's first minutes, starting with Metroid Prime. The Super Nintendo's audio capabilities were to be designed for, not around, and only a handful of composers were able to understand this. One of these people was Kenji Yamamoto, the composer for Super Metroid. The man understood how to utilize these 16-bit samples to create atmospheric pieces, as well as intense battle music and groovy explorative tracks. The question now is, how is Metroid supposed to sound with CD-quality instrumentation? A lot of Super Metroid's soundtrack came from its subtlety. What could Yamamoto-san do that would blow people away and scream Metroid? Well, as soon as the title screen faded in, the world was given its answer. I know you've heard this theme already, but why don't we take another listen? This intimidating glitchiness attempts to overpower the somber echo of the Metroid theme, and when the percussion kicks in, I think a ton of people knew what kind of game they were in for. As soon as you hit start, you hear the Metroid Prime theme for the first time, one of Kenji Yamamoto's finest compositions. 
It introduces an inviting yet mysterious melody, the instrumentation the game will carry with it, and the atmosphere that surrounds it. Kenji Yamamoto's instrumentation in the original Metroid Prime doesn't utilize an orchestra, it's all synthetic. Despite the leap in quality from the Super Nintendo, he was limited to certain sounds and instruments. So what did he do? He used instruments that only work when synthesized. Just like Super Metroid, he is designing for the limitations, not around them. These two pieces sound like science fiction incarnate, and they are brilliant invitations for both Metroid fans and fans of video games in general. Of course, the title screen is only a small portion of why Metroid Prime's introduction works so well. The first level may not be as iconic as Super Metroid's confrontation with Ridley, but it packs so much into its runtime that I prefer it greatly. It makes sense that a shift in perspective would cause players to feel a bit overwhelmed, so Metroid Prime's tutorial gives players both a hands-on demonstration of its mechanics and a taste of what's to come. The tutorial will actually allow me to bridge into my full analysis of the game, so that's convenient. As soon as you land and hear Samus' arrival theme for the first time, your first task is to disable this force field. This is where Metroid Prime's true nature is brought into question, as it contains a lock-on button. See, only in certain situations did Super Metroid ask you to properly aim your shots, and that amounted to sending a missile into Kraid's mouth, or using the shoulder button to take out enemies above you, or another scenario along those lines. Things were a lot simpler when there wasn't a Z-axis to worry about. However, rather than completely shifting the design of Metroid Prime into FPS territory, Retro decided to keep things simple. The lock-on mechanic means that nothing gets in between you and your enemy, and combat can focus on dodging and finding efficient solutions. For example, freezing an enemy with the ice beam and blasting them away with a missile. Draining a powerful enemy's health with the wave buster so you can focus on the others. And you'll do this while dodging attacks from enemies by pressing the jump button while moving left or right. This is taught most effectively in the battle with the Parasite Queen, in which you'll need to keep yourself positioned ahead of her shield so you can fire through the opening. Problem solving and quick reflexes in combat have always been at the heart of Metroid, and Retro managed to adapt it beautifully here. Granted, it's hard to ignore the influence of an FPS entirely. I mean, after all, most of these people worked on first-person shooters before coming to Retro. There are still instances where using free aim is going to benefit you, which is taught in this first moment too. There are some enemies and boss fights where free aim is going to be of great use to you, like the swarming bugs and such, and this applies to puzzle-solving scenarios as well. But because free aim is utilized so selectively based on situations that call for it, or your own ingenuity coming to play, or perhaps you're just surveying the world around you, it still feels like it adheres to the spirit of Metroid. It's another means of dealing with enemies and interacting with your environment. Metroid Prime's controls in combat definitely changed people's expectations of how a console shooter can function, and gracefully transition the series' combat into 3D. Something else that becomes vital to Metroid Prime's design is the Scan Visor. Here, it's used to activate doors, elevators, what have you. But you can also scan non-essential orange panels that'll inform you of the frigate's situation, its backstory, and the fates of the space pirates that worked there. The Scan Visor will help you find that missing piece of the puzzle, give you clues, and more. But it's also an example of discovery in an inactive narrative. Okay, so what the heck does that mean? Well, let's fast forward a few years to Breath of the Wild. All of its events took place 100 years before you took control of Link, and your discovery of how events unfold come from locating where each memory took place. That's a modern, well-known example of how it's been implemented in a video game. However, Breath of the Wild is also an entirely non-linear game, so your timeline of events could be all over the place and your context for these cutscenes might not be as strong. Of course, there's far more to it than that, but that's a video for another day. The point is, it's an essential part of Metroid Prime's storytelling, and it works in the game's favor due to it having straightforward progression. You may be going all over the world, but there's still only one correct path to take. Each area tells a story as long as you decide to look into it. 
Chozo Ruins tells the tale of the Chozo species' final moments on Talon 4, eventually succumbing to the catastrophic force of Phazon. Speaking of which, Phazon Mines tells the tale of space pirates mining Phazon and quarantining mutated Metroids, why they've targeted Samus, and you can even discover the origins of the game's namesake. Phazon Mines has a few overt narrative devices that go beyond the scan visor, like mutated Metroids attacking you and environmental storytelling along the same lines, and the scan visor gives you context. Anyway, the point is, the scan visor is just as much a part of the game's design as it is integral to its storytelling. Visors in general are a mechanic unique to Metroid Prime, and they aim to take advantage of the shift in perspective. While mostly situational, the thermal and x-ray visors determine how Retro was able to introduce concepts that work best in 3D. You'll be able to see in the dark and track enemy heat signatures with the thermal visor, and you can spot invisible enemies, locate invisible platforms and hazards, and see through fake walls to net yourself some items. Generally, these accentuate the detail Retro has put into the world of Metroid Prime. You've got clues and lore everywhere you look thanks to the visor additions, and I love that. Speaking of alternative weapons, there are also three beams for you to unlock over the course of the game. The Wave Beam, Plasma Beam, and Ice Beam, and you can switch between the three of them at will. Charged shots from each of these beams will paralyze, freeze, or burn certain enemies, so you can see why you have the ability to switch between your beams. An Ice Blast won't work well in Fendrana Drifts, and good luck using the Plasma Beam in Magmore Caverns. Actually, you used the Ice Beam to grab the Plasma Beam in Magmore Caverns, so the two areas link up beautifully in that regard. Some of my favorite strategies are paralyzing the Space Pirates with the Wave Beam and then blasting them away with a barrage of missiles, or freezing enemies and then shattering them like I mentioned before, and you can grab upgrades for each of your beams that require missiles. So there's a huge incentive for exploration. Beam strategy is a big reason combat in Metroid Prime feels so good, aside from what we've discussed already. Enemies will press down on you, and circle strafing around them while pouring shots into them will take forever. You're always looking for a quick way to deal with the, even the toughest enemies, and that contributes to consistent engagement. I do get sick of getting locked in a room with space pirates or Chozo ghosts, as they take forever to kill, and the ghosts jump all over the place requiring you to constantly switch visors. Still, this game's selection of enemies and bosses drive the point home. It's great at setting you up for difficult situations. Did you learn about how to use the thermal visor? Use that knowledge to kill Thardis. Can you strafe around your enemy and focus on a weak point? Use that skill to kill Shigoth. Speaking of setting you up, you're given a taste of what's to come in the tutorial. Contrary to Super Metroid, Prime's first level gives you access to a few of the abilities you'll come across later. You'll be able to play around with the charge beam, missiles, the space jump, and even the grapple beam when situations call for it. And all of these instances are laid out incrementally in this short time frame. Then, after defeating the Parasite Queen, you'll need to trek your way through the frigate before it explodes and without the items you had before. Intriguing introduction. Mechanical intro. Boss fight. Escape sequence. A revised and improved version of Super Metroid's tutorial that sets you up for greatness in every way. The only thing left to be introduced as you land on Talon 4 is Metroid Prime's atmosphere. The atmosphere has always been a huge part of Metroid, for reasons we've discussed. Super Metroid broke the mold when it came to video game atmosphere, and the loss of subtlety when shifting to 3D could have sucked. But instead, Metroid Prime is often remembered for how captivating its atmosphere is. The Talon overworld is such a stark contrast to the evil and pulse-pounding frigate. The music is a soothing take on the Brinstar melody. The textures are washed out yet eye-popping at the same time, and the rain hitting your visor as you traverse the environment. It's all such a beautiful way to ease the player into the game's explorative aspects, and its diverse and immersive atmosphere. I just want to lie down in the grass and bask in the serenity of it all.
The advent of 3D graphics, the shift in perspective, and the high quality sounds capable of playback on a disc all make for a huge jump for the Metroid series. The first level, Chozo Ruins, takes you through the mysterious remains of an alien species. You might think that's sand lying around, but due to the place decaying and lying dormant over the years, some have theorized that it's actually a buildup of dust, which would be an amazing detail if intentional. To capture this feeling of intrigue, Kenji Yamamoto used some groovy percussion paired with some electronic melodies to drive exploration. That electronic whistle would become a motif for the Metroid Prime trilogy, and it's a nice way to fit a memorable melody into an ambient piece. As you delve into the heart of the Chozo Ruins, you'll find an elevator to Magmore Caverns. As opposed to the lush greens and the glowing beige of the previous levels, this level is a flaming red. It's oppressive, claustrophobic, and doesn't attempt to make traversal easy for you. Appropriately, Kenji Yamamoto recreated the Norfair Ancient Ruins theme from Super Metroid here. Once you escape the confines of the planet's core, you'll find Fentron Adrifts, the Metroid level that resonates with me the most. It's the only level that's completely disconnected from the Talon Overworld hub, and I appreciate that. After such a harsh onslaught, it's nice to be rewarded by a palette cleanse with some bright white snow and a beautiful background track to accompany it. That piano piece set to those trademark Metroid Prime space noises. You feel right at home, yet like you're in another world at the same time. After completing the level's first objective and wrapping back around, Ridley flies overhead, reminding you of what you're working towards and the grim context of those goals. Speaking of which, the Phazon Mines. We've talked about how the narrative unfolds here, but this place is sinister as all hell. You dive deep into the mines, fighting the toughest enemies you've ever faced, in claustrophobic rooms with pure anxiety backing it all up, courtesy of the game's soundtrack. It's here where I think I died the most in Metroid Prime and where I noticed how distressing Samus' death scream sounds. It filled me with this sense of guilt, as if I was responsible considering how capable Samus actually is. Fun fact about the death scream, it was recorded by a separate actress. Apparently, it was because audio lead Clark Wen wanted to go for a higher register for the scream, and he went with a scream performed by an actress with the initials VM, an intriguing mystery that adds to its disturbing nature. The game has moments that take my breath away every single time I commit to a playthrough. Like investigating the Chozo Temple for the first time, as that lovely choir sweeps me off my feet. Heading underwater with the gravity suit only to realize you're traversing the frigate you once infiltrated above the planet, as this poignant piano piece takes over.
it never misses a beat. And it proved to the world that a jump in technology wouldn't do away with Super Metroid's quaint and unique atmosphere. If anything, it respects what a Super Nintendo game was able to do, and recaptures that while pulling out all the stops. It results in a game you just can't help but enjoy getting lost in. And I think that's something any Metroidvania should strive for. It is in their nature to feel like a giant maze, so if there are things the game can do to make your time memorable, that's worthy of my praise. Most levels even have alternate tracks that play when you're far below the surface. Fendrana Drift's depths, for example, have much groovier percussion and synth to emphasize the level's shift in pace and challenge. and overworld depths feel like an entirely separate level, as they take place in this grove that you gradually ascend, with the music barely resembling what you once associated with that area. Often I completely forget how close I am to where I started. That's something that's awesome about Metroid Prime's level design. It reveals several shortcuts to different areas in ways you wouldn't expect, while simultaneously introducing new portions of already familiar levels. Because the game utilizes the Z-axis, it can branch off and connect in more ways than previously possible. Doors can be placed at any coordinate, they can introduce challenges based around 3D concepts, such as anything involving the Morph Ball, 3D platforming, rotating tunnels, scanning criteria all over the room, etc. It's both new and exciting for Metroid, and yet... familiar. Mind you, this was also a very early attempt at creating a three-dimensional Metroidvania, so it isn't perfect. The game requires you to travel to a completely separate area in order to grab power-ups on occasion, and that can be a detriment to pacing. In structure, its map is very similar to that of a 2D Metroid game meaning that you'll continue climbing down until you reach the bottom, with elevators to reach the surface and connecting areas. While this structure can work in a game that only wants you to worry about a two-dimensional plane, it can be problematic with 3D map design. First, let's take a look at how each level connects. At first, only one elevator will connect you to Talon Overworld from Chozo Ruins, but you'll eventually uncover a one-stop shop for Talon Overworld travel. One of the elevators connected to this room takes you to the sunken frigate, the other buries you in the depths of the Overworld. This, however, connects conveniently to Phazon Mines, so that's nice, but let's dig a bit deeper. Chozo Ruins will also hook you up with Magmore Caverns, which is a long stretch of land that contains the only two elevators to Fendrana Drifts, and they're placed at opposite ends of the level, which makes backtracking to Fendrana Drifts a pain in the neck. There is at least an elevator in Talon Overworld that cuts your travel time in half. These connecting paths seem pretty fair at first glance, and progression seems to follow a great rhythm between each area. Your time in Fendrana is concentrated, and you rarely have to return to the area for more items. Usually, shortcuts and optimization through knowledge of an area can carry you through the power-up collecting and backtracking. I, however, cannot say the same for Phazon Mines. There are two elevators here, one at the top of the level, and one at the bottom. In between are multiple floors of Hell. Spider-ball tracks, Phazon-infested rooms, enemies that keep locking you in rooms, puzzles that reset upon leaving and re-entering the area, it's a mess. I love the atmosphere of Phazon Mines, but it's not a level I enjoy revisiting. An initial run of the level will provide you with some intense action, fun puzzle solving, and a great narrative, but the magic quickly fades when you return to grab some items you missed. 
Unfortunately, travel time is a huge issue with Metroid Prime's level design. Sometimes, no matter how they try to alleviate the issue with elevators and shortcuts, it's an inescapable problem. Chozo Ruins, despite its vast amount of path to take and endless amounts of secrets to uncover, its structure means that a ton of backtracking will take place throughout the game, and it's inevitable. Even small optimizations won't cut it. There's a lot of backtracking in Metroid Prime. There's no speed booster here due to the disorientation that would ensue, and while the Morph Ball is much faster than trekking on foot, you can't use it seamlessly throughout each room. You'll have to pop out at some point. The point I'm trying to make here is that pathfinding weighs heavily on the player in a Metroidvania. Finding the route you need to take is rewarding in its own way as it always has been with Metroid. And the same goes for finding secrets and upgrades. But due to the Z-axis multiplying the number of paths to take, and due to the structure of some levels being built around your initial run more than anything, it can sometimes result in frustration. I'm really not a fan of repeatedly trekking through Magmore Caverns or scaling Phazon Mines over and over again. I'm not against the idea of running into dead ends when exploring in a Metroidvania either. Dead ends can still convey new information that will come in handy as you attain further upgrades. What bugs me is the journey required of you to travel between waypoints, and that issue is accentuated when you make a mistake, and you have to start all over. It also doesn't help that as you expand your arsenal, most enemies are barely a challenge at all, so you can just blast through rooms mindlessly. Of course, they took note of this, and that's why when I'm forced to confront enemies like Space Pirates and Chozo Ghosts, I'm incredibly annoyed. But I am willing to forgive Retro for all of these things. After all, this was one of the earliest attempts at transitioning the genre into 3D. So those lingering issues were going to be carried over. Both 2D and 3D Metroidvanias have since figured out ways to diminish backtracking, both in connected and segmented maps. Metroid Fusion, which was released on the same day as Prime, had a room at the top that contained elevators to each sector, and those sectors can connect to each other. It's seamless, engaging, and you have an easy method of retreating back to the surface and going somewhere else. So the genre was seeing attempts at streamlining exploration, and as the Prime trilogy went on, it did experiment with new map layouts and mechanics to accompany a three-dimensional plane. You'll see what I mean in due time. I think a big reason I, and a few others, tend to bring up Metroid Prime's backtracking problem is because of the endgame quest. The hunt for the Chozo artifacts. I often compare its inclusion to something like the Triforce chart quest in Wind Waker. They both make themselves apparent at the very end of the game, although they can both be completed throughout your playthrough with the right items and some ingenuity. However, whereas Wind Waker requires you to fork over 3,000 rupees in order to decipher the damn charts, Metroid Prime only requires that you stumble upon the Chozo Temple, which is a whimsical moment in and of itself, and then scan the statues to gain clues to the whereabouts of the artifacts. You can do this at virtually any point in the game, and it allows you to venture off the beaten path whenever you feel like you're in the proximity of one of those pesky things. Of course, not everyone is going to know about these things until the end of the game, so that's why it further accentuates the issue. And even then, some of the Chozo artifacts can only be grabbed after obtaining late-game upgrades like the Phazon suit, so you'll be doing a lot of running around regardless. Even so, I think this quest is a welcome addition to the game. There is discussion to be had when analyzing collectibles like heart pieces or energy tanks in a game like Zelda or Metroid. If, by the end of the game, your only objective is to kill the final boss, why should you feel obliged to collect all these items? Because the boss is going to be hard? Sure, but there's no guarantee that you'll acquire that much of a boost. Only in hindsight will you be able to determine whether or not that extra cleanup was worth it. Thus, we're left with another question. Is collecting the items fun and rewarding? While not every energy tank is a winner, and some Messel expansions are just ripe for the taking, but I'd say they succeeded in the long run. 
Metroid Prime does a great job of conveying environmental clues to the player, and the scan visor can further assist you with recovering information. Once you find something you think you can investigate later, you keep that on the back burner until you find yourself in that area again. Expand your arsenal and get excited to check out more of each area. The spirit of Metroid lives within Prime for sure. Not only did I have an opportunity to collect everything, but it was fun and challenging to do so. It's funny, really. The overall structure of Metroid Prime may have its own problems, but the game gives you so many opportunities to dig into its secrets. It's a giant, confusing maze, but it's a maze that I don't ever want to find the exit in. I just want to keep challenging myself to find everything in it, rerouting myself in conjunction with the Chozo artifacts and solving puzzles along the way. Metroid Prime, despite its missteps in being the first of its kind, is one of the most engaging, intelligent, intense, and immersive video games I have ever played. And by the way, Yes, grabbing every item is worth it. The final boss will mop the floor with you. First of all, you need to fight Ridley. Focusing his weak point isn't easy, and he'll constantly fly away if you can't continuously deal damage to him. But if you time your shots just right, he'll go down in due time. The actual final boss fight with the game's namesake is insane. It'll switch between the four beam types, and you'll need to deal consistent damage while it viciously assaults you. This is why the beam upgrades would come in handy, as the Wave Buster and Flamethrower will melt its health away. Using these beam upgrades costs missiles, so yeah, you can probably see how the design of this game works in conjunction with all of its elements. The final phase has you avoiding the devastating damage it can deal and killing its baby Metroids while you find pools of Phazon to utilize. Spam that A button like your life depends on it, because it does. You gotta switch visors, manage multiple hazards, it's an insane test of endurance. But it feels amazing to finally kill Metroid Prime. So? Thus ends the first game in what eventually became a trilogy. I know I already summarized my thoughts because I just couldn't wait, but the final boss reaffirms my stance. This is an incredible game. To this day, I still love revisiting it, despite 3D Metroidvanias essentially being born from this first step. It has this pull, this timeless invitation to explore. Its combat, despite being so early on, is fleshed out and it feels great. Its level design, despite its missteps, translates the heart of Metroid into 3D. Its storytelling and environmental clues work best thanks to the shift in perspective, and it's something that I continue to admire to this very day. I dream of making a game that has even a quarter of the impact that Metroid Prime had on me as a young child, and looking back on it today, it holds up pretty damn well. It's no wonder it found success. As of December 2014, the GameCube version alone has sold just under 3 million units, making it the best-selling game in the Metroid franchise to this day, excluding virtual console sales. It also remains one of the highest rated games on Metacritic, sitting pretty at a 97. It's one thing for me to say that Prime relaunched the Metroid series, but some hard-hitting evidence really puts it in perspective. That's why it wasn't a surprise when Nintendo announced a sequel shortly thereafter. For Metroid Prime 2, Retro had far more creative freedom than before, and that meant a few things were on the table. For starters, they wanted to make the game much harder. They wanted to make the player constantly worry about their health and ammo, and that would be a natural incentive to scour areas for upgrades. They also incorporated cut elements from the previous game, like the screw attack for example, but perhaps most noteworthy were changes to the game's level design and narrative, that of which dramatically alter the way the game is played. I alluded to this change a little while back in my analysis of Prime 1, and I've been itching to discuss it here. Against a strict deadline, Metroid Prime 2 was able to release just two years after the first game, on November 15, 2004, a day before Half-Life 2, and a week after Halo 2. It was a cramped month for first-person shooters, as both games would rock the industry to its core. 
Perhaps that would explain Prime 2's comparatively weak sales, but Metroid Prime 2 wasn't aiming to be like those games. Retro just wanted to make the best damn Metroid game they could, and not worry about everything else. The GameCube era wasn't the most lucrative generation for Nintendo, as their partnerships were slipping away while sales dwindled. Despite everything, the core team at Nintendo was made up of people who love video games. Business came second. That's why Nintendo launched a viral marketing campaign that equally satirized and paid respect to the I Love Bees ARG that Bungie were responsible for. Various domains went live, such as the conspiracy theory forum Luminoth Temple that hosted grainy footage of Prime 2 as if it was footage of aliens. There was even a direct callout at the domain ilovebeams.com, which hosted an image of Samus's visor and some text that read, All your bees are belong to us. Never send a man to do a woman's job. That meme brings back some memories. Anyway, Prime 2 came out and people loved it. One of those people was a kid named Liam, and after replaying it today as an adult, he thinks Metroid Prime 2 is a strong contender for one of the best Metroid games he's ever played. I thought I had seen the last of Phazon, but its destructive force has spread to other worlds. The Galactic Federation has sent out a distress signal from the planet Aether. There, I discovered that a Phazon meteor has created a dark parallel to the planet, and creatures known as Ing have possessed both the native Luminos species and soldiers of the Federation. Even worse, some unfinished business from Talon IV has come back to haunt me. The mirror paradigm to Aether, and the mirror image that follows me. Imitate us. Shadow us. Echo us. I love that title screen. The choir is immediately inviting, and then you hear that iconic Metroid Prime whistle play the main theme for Prime 2, and then it pumps you up for some action with that electric guitar riff and some appropriate percussion. The percussion symbolizes the ancient Luminoth race, which is what the plot of this game revolves around. They're on the brink of extinction, and Samus agreed to help them because it's just what she does. That notion is what really made me look up to her as a kid. It's a daunting task to essentially save an entire species from being wiped out, but she does so anyway. I always thought that Samus was a pretty stoic, intelligent bounty hunter that was capable of showing compassion, but to actually see her take on something like this is pretty cool. And in the end, when she succeeds in doing this, she just gives them a wave and moves on. That's how you create a strong vessel for the player to embody. Creating a blank slate for the player is one thing, but having them embody someone with defined characteristics is far more difficult. That's why the decision to keep Samus silent was ideal in the end. You can identify with her decision-making and relate to her on some level, while also taking on the role of a formidable bounty hunter that can mow through enemies in her way. Anyway, let's back up a bit. Samus's decision to help the Luminoth was the right thing to do, yeah, but it makes far more sense when you have context for it. And oh boy, there is no shortage of reasons for her to do this. Metroid Prime 2's introduction may not be as iconic as that frigate going up in smoke, but its emotional depth and tight design make up for that. With but a line of text to go off of, you land on the planet Aether. The opening area, that dark cave, carries with it a claustrophobic atmosphere. There's uncertainty as you approach your objective. The lighting is all gloomy, there's no sign of fresh air from anywhere, and as you approach the research station, you realize you were too late. 
So many Federation soldiers have fallen victim to a mysterious toxin infecting their system. Some of their bodies carry with them their final log entries, which tell a disturbing tale. Apparently the Federation was not prepared for what they'd find on Aether, and the soldiers they sent ended up falling victim to the Aang. They've been possessed, and their reanimated corpses begin to attack Samus. As a concept, this is far darker than anything I've seen a Nintendo game tackle. We've seen Majora's Mask and Pokemon grapple with death in the process of grieving, but in a subtler, E-for-everyone manner. That's what made the game so clever. Hell, that's what makes writing for kids' media such a big challenge with an enormous payoff. Metroid is one of Nintendo's only ongoing first-party series where they can delve into territory like this without restraint. Even the Luminoth go through this kind of thing, one of them even committing suicide before the Ing possesses them. And once again, these logs can only be discovered if you use the scan visor. This overwhelming burst of grim content is first presented during an organic gameplay tutorial, and before your weapons are stripped from you, you meet Dark Samus for the first time. She completely overpowers you and you'll need to start from scratch in the Temple Grounds. This tutorial is more than I could ask for in a sequel to Metroid Prime. I adore what it achieves. Because of the tutorial, I found myself using the scan visor on things more than I ever did in the first game. I remember stumbling upon that Federation ship and seeing everyone die in a flashback, and then immediately wanting to learn more about each soldier. This area tells a non-linear narrative, and you can piece it together by finding each soldier lying around. The first one I found talked about a soldier named Haley. I think Haley's losing it. He talks to himself all the time, and he won't sleep. He almost shot me on watch the other night. I think he thought I was one of those... things. I talked to the doc about taking him off the line, and he told me we need all the help we can get. That's true, but if he goes berserk and kills a bunch of us, that won't be very helpful. After reading this one, I scoured the area to find the soldier he was talking about, and sure enough, his final log entry was... interesting. I hear them... everywhere. They're coming! Can't sleep. Ever. Ever. They'll eat me. I also remember a couple of soldiers talking about Samus as if she was this unstoppable, mythical force that could accomplish anything, and that felt empowering. <sighs> this is ridiculous. I can outshoot half the men here, and I'm stuck on monitor duty. I didn't join up to stare at a hollow screen. This wouldn't happen to Samus Aaron. She'd be out there taking care of business, not pushing buttons and sending reports. Last night at Chow, Angsa starts talking about some bounty hunter and how she blew up a planet full of space pirates. I told her I didn't believe in fairy tales like that, and she took it personal. I just find it hard to believe that one person took out an entire space pirate base, that's all. But if she wants to believe in this Samus, or Bigfoot, or Santa Claus, she can. This isn't a one-time thing, by the way. As long as you are able to find the corpse of a soldier or a Luminoth, you'll be able to learn something about how that character died, or what they were doing before the Ing got to them. I'm the only one left. Managed to get out of the hive. But when I got to the ship, everyone was gone. Dead. I'm heading for that alien building we saw earlier. Maybe someone can help me there. Wait. Something's moving down there. Hello? <laughs> uh, Bruda lost the bet, so he switched watch duty with me. I figure this section is nice and safe and boring, which suits me just fine. Let those other pugs guard the hot zone, I Hold on. Hey! Wait! Oh! oh! Ah! 
I think about these characters more than I think the developers intended, but it's details like this that make an inactive narrative work beautifully. What if the soldier you just heard could have made it to the temple? What if Angseth lived to meet Samus Aran? Because of this, I felt a sense of vengeance and anger towards the Ing. I was motivated to wipe them out, save the Luminoth species, and power up so I can kill Dark Samus and be home in time for breakfast. That's phenomenal writing for a Metroid game. It's a tradition at this point for events to take place before and after the meat of a Metroid game, and Retro managed to work within those boundaries to create something brilliant. If there's a word I would use to describe Metroid Prime 2, it would be oppressive. Everything about this game feels like it's caving in on you, and you have to fight back in every instance. And that is what makes it work so well. For starters, let's talk about Prime 2's biggest gameplay hook, Dark Aether. If you've played Link to the Past, you probably already know how this is going to go down. Surprisingly, a light world, dark world system hasn't been attempted in Metroid outside of Prime 2. It seems like it'd be a natural way to introduce twice the amount of variety in level design, right? And you'd have puzzles that involve swapping between the two worlds to nab goodies. It's a no-brainer. Well, apparently Retro had to consult with former Link to the Past developers in order to make sure this was executed properly. It takes a lot of careful consideration to make something like this work, and Retro had under two years to finish the game, so it's no wonder they needed some help. In the end, these concepts did end up being utilized. As I recall, the subterranean complex of Torvus Bog revolved around this method of navigation. You'll need to connect through a maze of portals in order to fight Alpha Blog in a chamber separate from other light world tunnels, and the main loop is broken in the dark world, so you'll need to transfer between the two worlds in order to reach the grapple beam. Want another example? Well, some portals are one-way streets. There's this mysterious portal in Agon Wastes that's locked behind a gate. Upon entering the portal from the dueling range in Dark Aether, you'll be able to continue down the path towards the Dark Burst weapon upgrade. This kind of lateral thinking is in play throughout the entirety of Metroid Prime 2. The Sanctuary Fortress has a ton of traveling between worlds for navigation and puzzle solving, because although the two are generally seamless, the rooms are altered so that they require different items and strategies. The elevator to the Temple Grounds in Sanctuary Fortress is replaced with a series of screw attack jumps that you have to make. Some of the portals are spread thin, and you'll have to make long journeys through the Dark World in order to make some progress and link up with the Light World again. There's even a room that revolves around rapidly switching between the two worlds. It's like a miniature maze within an even bigger maze. As you can probably tell, the game revolves around this mechanic. It's what makes the map of Prime 2 so diverse, complex, and engaging. It also helps that the elevator layout and general map progression is much smoother in this game. In contrast to the messy layout of the first game, there are elevators that are spread evenly throughout this game's four main areas. From the Great Temple, you can take three elevators, which leads you to three of the Temple Ground's primary sectors, each having their own elevator to Agon Wastes, Torvus Bog, and Sanctuary Fortress. You progress through these areas one after the other, with rare breaks in which you have to backtrack to another area for a new item. But in those instances, they find ways to make it work. I was miffed about traveling all the way back to the subterranean complex of Torvus Bog just to get the power bomb, but when I saw that I could take an elevator to a new portion of the Sanctuary Fortress and explore with my new upgrade, I was happy. Just everything about this game's level design works so well. The game is exceptionally linear due to its straightforward area-by-area -area progression, but the possibilities for doors to open thanks to your expanded arsenal, and the wealth of translator gates to unlock, it feels like a much more open-ended game, and it strikes a phenomenal balance. So that's what makes it work in practice, and it sets itself up for some great exploration. What makes the level design feel oppressive? Well, every time you're in Dark Aether, your health will steadily drain, and you can only replenish it within areas of light. 
This means that fighting tough enemies, traversing dangerous terrain, or simply walking for too long could spell the end of you. This rectifies the issue of being too powerful for enemies in Prime 1, as even if you're able to blast through areas, you'll still need to worry about your health. Without question though, this creates a natural incentive for collecting energy tanks, and the game doesn't make it terribly easy for you to do so. Aside from the first few being only a few steps out of the way from your new upgrades, like a missile door or a morph ball cannon, the energy tanks all require you to memorize the layout of the game's map, use critical thinking to deduce how you can interact with it, and sometimes it just takes raw skill and knowledge of the game's mechanics. It's a bit odd that one of them can only be obtained with the light suit, because at that point the dark world won't drain your health anymore, but in setting you up for the final boss, I suppose I can get behind its inclusion. Essentially, the point I'm trying to make is that the nature of Dark Aether made me scour for upgrades organically, and that is fantastic. I can say the same for the beam upgrades too. In this game, there are three beams for you to use. The Dark Beam, the Light Beam, and the Annihilator Beam. Despite the new coats of paint, the Dark and Light Beams function identically to the Ice and Plasma Beams, respectively. What differentiates them from their older siblings is the ammo limit enforced on you. In order to regain ammo for the beam you're using, you'll need to kill enemies with the opposite beam. So there's more strategy at play here than there was in the first game. Honestly, I only used the Ice Beam in tandem with missiles, and I tended to use the more powerful beams as soon as I'd obtained them. There were reasons to switch back to the power beam, obviously, it fires as fast as you can mash the A button after all. But critical thinking was relegated to scenarios like, which combination of weapons can I use to kill these enemies quickly? By the way, that's not a bad thing. That's still an example of great design. But in Metroid Prime 2, you're thinking about which weapon would be smartest to use to conserve ammo, and if you can afford to use your ammo in order to mow through tough enemies, on top of thinking about enemy strengths and weaknesses, damage and weapon combinations. It drove me to look for beam ammo capacity upgrades as best I could, as well as the charge beam upgrades that returned from the previous game. The Annihilator beam may use both ammo kinds at once, but it is incredibly powerful. The beam upgrade may drain even more ammo, but it's easily one of the most devastating weapons in the Metroid series. So you're collecting energy tanks to stay afloat, ammo and beam upgrades to have more leeway in your decision making, and the enemies won't let up. Sure, Space Pirates and now the Ing are still a pain in the ass to deal with, as they lock you in a room and won't stop attacking until you either kill them all or they decide they're done, but the other enemies in the game are exceptional. The underwater portions of Torvus Bog are home to the blog enemies, that charge after you at full speed giving you minimal time to dodge and shoot them in their weak point. The Sanctuary Fortress has several enemies that are designed to mess with you, or take multiple steps to kill. One of the floating enemies can completely crash Samus's power suit, and I remember being genuinely startled when that first happened to me. There are also these enemies that turn into terrifying Beyblades that can be taken out by either the Morph Ball, or by separating its head from its body and destroying it that way. These enemies significantly elevate the challenge from the previous game, and I welcome that. But perhaps the most significant enemies worth discussing are the bosses. Metroid Prime 2 has some incredible bosses. Great ideas all over the place, and some of them are really hard. For each power-up Samus gets, you'll need to fight one of the Guardians. They're named after the power-ups you'll be getting, and their abilities only slightly exaggerate what they can do. Slightly. This, in and of itself, introduces a ton of variety into boss battles. Being swamped by the Ing as the Boost Guardian shoots across the room, it's one intense fight. The Grapple Guardian will force you out of your safe zone, so you'll need to dodge accordingly and find the right moments to get behind it. Yeah, I should mention that most of these bosses are fought in the open air of Dark Aether, so your health is constantly draining unless you huddle into your radius of light. That's what makes these fights feel like you're being choked. There are also a few boss fights that revolve around the Morph Ball, and I thoroughly enjoy how clever and tough they are. The Spider Guardian involves timing your bombs with the boss's trajectory, and then rushing to the power stations before it breaks out of its paralysis. 
The Power Bomb Guardian isn't as tough, but it can still knock you down without careful timing and positioning. There's also a boss in the Sanctuary Fortress that involves using the Spider Ball to avoid the floor, and the boost to jump across and dodge an electrical shock. This one isn't incredibly difficult or anything, but it takes place in between save areas, so a first-time player needs to stay on their toes, and figuring the boss out is part of the challenge. Each energy controller has a boss for you to take out before you can restore power to the Great Temple, and the three bosses guarding these controllers are Amorbus, Chica, and Quadraxis. They have multiple extravagant phases to the fight, and test you on various concepts. Amorbus wants you to track a huge enemy as it scurries through the sand, and then you need to bomb it with the Morph Ball after you whittle its health down. Not too difficult, but you'll need to keep moving through Dark Aether's hazardous air. Chica, on the other hand, may have a lot of room for movement under an area of light, but it will destroy you if you're not careful. As it swims through the bog, you'll have to time your shots, and only shoots up for a brief period of time. Then, once it's stunned, you can lay into it, but that's only the child phase. The adult Chica can charge up its egg sac and fire babies at you, and you won't have your precious area of comfort anymore. You'll need to constantly keep moving and destroy the boss's wings while grappling from platform to platform and avoiding its toxic spit. Quadraxis has a similar motif, in which you need to tear down its legs while avoiding its annihilator shots and some enemies you've become acquainted with throughout the fortress. In fact, when Quadraxis is stunned, you're supposed to boost straight through its legs to destroy them, just like those tiny quads. That's essentially what this boss boils down to, although the methods you go about destroying it differ drastically. The Echo Visor is a new and mostly situational mechanic in which you can search for connections around an area, and destroying them will unlock a door, kill an enemy, etc. In this fight, certain parts of the boss can only be destroyed with the Echo Visor equipped, which is a bit arbitrary, but finding the most powerful combination of weapons to diminish its health is something that Metroid Prime has taught you to great effect. All of this takes place without any source of light to replenish your health. You need to go in raw and hope to gather some pickups. These bosses really test you and attempt to get you to crack under pressure, and that's what I love about them. Although the added challenge of Prime 2 might not be for everyone, I felt it was essential to every aspect of its design. Perhaps the most oppressive bosses in the game are the final boss, Emperor Ing, and Dark Samus. Yeah, how appropriate. Let's talk about the final boss first, though. In this footage, I may have torn through its tentacles with the light beam, but that's only because I knew what I was doing. If you're not on top of the positioning of the tentacles, it will melt your health away. And after making it through that phase, as well as its phase on infested power bomb phase, you'd better hope you have the health and ammo to survive its final form. First, you'll need to memorize its patterns and blast through the orange ball of energy in its mouth, or through the back if it charges into a wall. When that happens, you'll need to shoot its mouth with the opposite beam, but the annihilator beam works no matter what color appears in its mouth. Now here's the thing, the final boss of Prime 1 could be killed regardless of how many missiles or energy tanks you manage to grab. It could be killed without your various beam upgrades. It'd obviously be much harder that way, but you didn't have to use the Wave Buster to drain its health or anything. That's an option, and it's rewarding in the grand scheme of things. Metroid Prime 2's final boss is an actual test of your resourcefulness throughout the game. Even if you feel like you're just scraping by finding what you can find, the default ammo and missile capacity aren't going to be anywhere near enough. It's as if the boss is directly asking you if you've grabbed all the upgrades. The boss directly incentivizes upgrading Samus, which is perfect for a Metroidvania. And it's also the hardest boss in the game, which really makes it feel like it's pressing down on you and testing your abilities. It also has some incredible music. I love how the Prime 2 theme blends into some badass percussion. We'll talk more about the music soon, just bear with me. As much as I thought Emperor Ing was oppressive, it didn't make me feel as helpless as Dark Samus did. As your mysterious archenemy, She'll invade your game and inconvenience you in the worst of ways. Just for fun, she shows up in Sanctuary Fortress and destroys the bridge, so you can't make your way over to the other side without the spider ball. 
She'll fight you over and over again, and as you get stronger, you can totally annihilate her again and again. She'll have some new tricks up her sleeve each time though, forcing you to adapt in the moment. What strikes me most is how she refuses to give up and she just won't die. She's essentially a mysterious blob of evolved Phazon. Why is she so insistent on going after Samus? That's what makes every encounter with her seem helpless, and my outlook became bleak. And before you can escape the Sky Temple and flee towards the Great Temple again, you'll have to fight Dark Samus on a time limit. On guard, and may the best bounty hunter win. That's probably my biggest takeaway from Metroid Prime 2's interpretation of Phazon. Having spread to so many different solar systems, it's become this unstoppable, inevitable force that can't be reasoned with. As Samus, I feel helpless and overwhelmed as I read about the Luminoth and Federation succumbing to the Ing. The level design, enemies, and bosses all encourage you to seek out some defense amidst this uncontrollable destruction, and it does so outstandingly. You can only really escape it when you take in the game's atmosphere, finding some solace amidst planetary devastation. All of these primary levels have distinct atmospheres with fantastic music, and their Dark Aether counterparts carry with them a more abrasive feel. The main melody of each song still comes along for the Dark counterpart, so you're reminded of what you can go back to. But let's dive into specifics. The Temple Grounds exist at the summit and connect you to each of the three main levels. The music symbolizes the Luminoth's pride in their species with that triumphant melody, and that funky fresh beat over the industrial clang drove me to explore. That rustic backing instrument is carried over to Angon Wastes which is essentially an underground and more deserted version of the Temple Grounds. Things feel lonely in both levels, as the entire species has been wiped out, and all that remains are… well, remains. Aegon Waste's music reflects the tragedy the Luminoth are facing. In contrast, the Sanctuary Fortress has futuristic instrumentals and some beautiful art direction, which captures every detail of the technological advancements the Luminoth were able to make on Aether. Unfortunately, the Ing have made this place their home, and it feels truly claustrophobic. The only middle ground between desertion and infestation is in Torvus Bog, my favorite level in the game. Those opening notes combined with the hi-hat in the background are enough to give me chills. There's a faint curiosity about its music, and I can't help but whistle its main melody. The level may not be free of Phazon infestation, and the Ing will still try to bring a stop to your adventure, but this level channels that serenity of Talon Overworld. The rain hitting your visor once again, the calm waters, the moody lighting. It feels like a desolate Metroid level, but also the only place in Metroid Prime 2 that feels untouched by the primary narrative, techie buildings aside. It's the closest you can come to paradise in a game where it's you against the world. Although, there was one moment in this game that really blew me away. Far more than the other levels were able to, and they still impressed me quite a bit. There are two parts to this story. Part 1 takes us back to 1994. Super Metroid's Lower Brinstar has one of my favorite songs in the entire franchise. It's dark, it's moody, and aims to unsettle you. It was the quintessential Metroid song to me. 
Fast forward to Metroid Prime, and this beautiful piano piece plays during your trip to the sunken frigate. It's a short moment, but you learn to savor it, as you probably won't be visiting the area ever again. Now, you combine these two elements, and you create Metroid Prime 2's best area, the subterranean depths of Torvus Bog. Utilizing Metroid Prime's instruments, Kenji Yamamoto managed to create something damn beautiful. You're in this deep, threatening complex, swimming through water, at the furthest point away from the Great Temple, and you have this music playing as you explore the facility. You don't spend too long here, much like Lower Brinstar in the Sunken Frigate. You're meant to hold on to these small moments of serenity amidst the chaos. I think that speaks volumes for what I believe is Metroid Prime 2's thesis. Savor those little moments amidst the claustrophobia in a game where everything feels out of your control. The only thing that would potentially bother me about Metroid Prime 2 as a whole would be the Sky Temple Keys, which is a similar endgame quest to the Chozo Artifacts. I mean, it doesn't make sense that they'd only appear after you retrieve the Light Suit, and the Light Suit itself does take the stress out of Dark Aether and puts a focus on simply exploring for the rest of the goodies, but I suppose prepping for the final boss by planning out your route and grabbing items isn't so bad. The Sky Temple Keys are at least fun to retrieve thanks to their unique challenges. I suppose some of you were probably expecting me to trash this aspect of the game, but I find it to be both disruptive and opportunistic at the same time. And even if I were to despise this quest, I don't think it would sully my outlook on the game as a whole. If it wasn't already obvious enough, I think Metroid Prime 2 is genius. With its exceptional level design, tense mechanics, intelligent bosses, and impeccable atmosphere and presentation, the game creates an atmosphere of claustrophobic oppression, and it's something I can't get enough of. Much like the first game, I look forward to revisiting this one for years to come. It's not only one of the best Metroid games I've ever played, but also one of the best video games I've ever played, hands down. Now I'd like to end it there, but there is a substantial part of Metroid Prime 2's story that I haven't talked about yet, and that is its multiplayer component. This seemed routine for any game that resembled the world's perception of what an FPS was, so every game was getting it. Half-Life 2 got a deathmatch client not long after the game's release. Call of Duty's game-changing campaign was accompanied by an equally robust multiplayer offering. Even Return to Castle Wolfenstein had some justification for its multiplayer existing. But Nintendo has never adhered to what the industry was doing, even in its most traditional eras. Why would they want Retro to give this a shot? Well, in 2004, the Nintendo DS hit the market. Although the GameCube was technically capable of online multiplayer, it was rarely ever attempted. I'm pretty sure only Fantasy Star Online and one Japanese-exclusive RPG did it. In-house, Nintendo was worried that they wouldn't be able to maintain quality control and turn a profit. Thus, they stuck with LAN for that era. Nintendo wanted the DS, and in turn the Wii, to take advantage of online multiplayer and services in any way they could, and make up for lost time. One of the launch titles for a DS was a demo called Metroid Prime Hunters First Hunt, which contained a deathmatch mode where four players could shoot each other via local wireless multiplayer. This would be a prototype for the game's fully-fledged online multiplayer suite, that pit all of the game's bounty hunters against each other in a deathmatch for up to eight players. There are a few game types to choose from, and the hunters are differentiated between based on their morph ball forms and special weapon pickups. The game cultivated an actual community of players that strategized based on map and mode. It wasn't just a novelty. It's worth looking into someday on this channel. 
Definitely not for this video, though. This video is already long enough as it is. Okay, so what does all of this have to do with Metroid Prime 2? Well, I believe Nintendo wanted to prepare Retro so they could create a fully-fledged multiplayer experience in the next mainline Prime game. But unfortunately, that still hasn't happened. And based on the concepts demonstrated within Prime 2 and the genuine community hunters managed to create, it's a damn shame they weren't able to go any further. Each match of Prime 2's multiplayer boils down to either getting the most kills or collecting the most coins before time runs out. And you can collect power-ups as you go. Combat boils down to shooting each other like crazy and dodging like your life depends on it because... Well, it does. You can bust open boxes around the map to grab beams and other power-ups, some of them being essential, others completely disrupting the flow of a match. The death ball may devastate players if you get close to them, but you move painfully slow and you can't exit from your morph ball until the power-up goes away. Hacker mode, in my experience, barely does anything worthwhile to other players, and you can't leave that one either. You're just stuck like that, unable to shoot for a bit. But aside from those missteps, the multiplayer works surprisingly well. Shooting other players feels chaotic and fun, the maps are all diverse and have their own creative benefits and alterations to a match, and it's simply a great time. The turret map is a bit broken in a two-player match, because as soon as one of the players gets into the turret, they have full control over the other player's movements. You'll need at least one other player to take it down. Unfortunately, that's really all there is to say. The multiplayer lacks a ton of basic modes and features and feels incomplete. Perhaps because it was incomplete, I don't doubt that. Nintendo's American division, we'll call them NST, did a fantastic job fleshing out Hunter's multiplayer mode. But Prime 2's is more of a proof of concept than anything, and that's why the lack of a continuation really stinks. Thankfully, the core strength of this series lies within its single-player roots, so it's not a huge deal. But I want to believe Retro is capable of creating something that surpasses what NST put out multiplayer-wise. To this day, they still haven't attempted anything like that. Well, they've only released five games since they set up shop in 1998, but that's not what we're discussing right now. The thing is, I think I know why they weren't able to tackle another multiplayer mode. Simply put, they didn't have time. By the time Metroid Prime 3 would be released, the GameCube was going to be obsolete. Retro Studios had bigger fish to fry, and an entirely new control scheme to develop. Nintendo's next console was going to be all about motion controls and accessibility, and they had to completely reinvent the first-person shooter before they could close out the trilogy. Supposedly, the controls for Metroid Prime 3 took a year to develop on their own, and that took precedence over the game's original release date, resulting in delays. It was clear that the focus of development became the utilization of the Wii's motion controls. So, Metroid Prime 3 released on August 27, 2007, to critical acclaim, just like its predecessors. Does it benefit from its control scheme? How does it close out the trilogy? What changes have been made to its level design and mechanics? And what did it aim to achieve? Well, let's take a look. Harnessing Phazon can prove to be beneficial or deadly, and that's the risk the Federation is willing to take. This so-called Dark Samus took us down effortlessly on Norion, and my fellow bounty hunters and I have all been infused with Phazon. The Federation is aiming to take control of it, but the element's true nature has quickly become evident, one by one. The hunters are falling to Phazon. And Dark Samus is seeping through every crack in the solar system. I'm being forced to confront people I once worked so closely with. And I can't help but wonder when my time will come too. Phazon doesn't just mutate. It corrupts. 
the final title screen of the trilogy. The music symbolizes the eclipse of the trilogy's narrative events and a send-off by the developers. We went from easing the player's worries and sounding unquestionably like Metroid, to having confidence in the game and pumping the player up for something awesome, to preparing to say goodbye. At least that's what I gather from it. And I feel like it's appropriate, as you'll have to say goodbye a lot in Prime 3, but we'll get to that in due time. A lot of Metroid Prime 3 feels like it's designed to be someone's first Metroid game, which is ironic considering this is the game that's designed to close the Prime trilogy. But I get it. The Wii brought in a ton of people that don't usually play video games thanks to its simple interface and accessible controls, so this direction makes sense. As such, all of Metroid Prime 3 is designed to be accessible. This is both beneficial and detrimental to the game. But let's start with the strong points. First of all, what has stayed consistent? While the atmosphere, visuals, and audio design of Prime 3 are as enveloping as the previous games in the series, Samus's trip through the GFS Olympus is set to this foreboding music track. You're safe in this moment, but that feeling of comfort won't last forever. The resemblance to Half-Life in this tutorial is pretty uncanny, actually. You get to learn your controls at a leisurely pace and investigate the bits and pieces of the Federation ship that interest you. The parallels to Half-Life become even stronger as everything comes crashing down. Space pirates invade like the creatures of Zen in Half-Life, and you scramble to regroup with your fellow bounty hunters as people are killed and sucked out into space, similarly to escaping Black Mesa as the scientists succumb to the alien invasion. The Phazon-infested seeds within each planet also look very Zen-esque. Sorry, I must have Half-Life on the brain. If it wasn't obvious by now, Prime 3's art direction is fantastic. There are these beautifully distinct areas that each tell a story. Bria was once home to a species that made several technological and scientific advancements after contacting the Chozo, Luminoth, and the Ilia, and you can read about their journey as you explore. It has an amazing sense of scale, but Skytown blows it out of the water in that regard. Thanks to the jump in RAM from the GameCube, levels as big as the ones featured in Metroid Prime 3 are totally possible, and to really showcase that extra horsepower, Skytown was created. It's this industrialized, steampunk sort of town floating far above Alicia. And it feels amazing to zipline from station to station or screw attack over big gaps towards new portions of the level, taking in the splendor of it all. The RAM upgrade also allowed for higher quality audio samples, so the music is only a few steps away from sounding like a live orchestra and choir. Seriously, you can only get so far with synthetic vocals in a soundtrack for a game like Metroid Prime. If there were ever a time to utilize them, it would be now, with those high quality samples. Brio and Skytown both use vocals to drive the grandiose scale of the level's home. Brio is practically soaked in them. In contrast to those two levels, the pirate homeworld is drenched in this horrible atmosphere. It feels hellish and exploring carries with it uncertainty. But it's absolutely gorgeous. So that's what remained consistently excellent from the last two games. What has been improved? Well, the most obvious example is the control scheme. After all, they spent a lot of the game's development period working on the controls. Surely they'd have something to show for it, right? Well, indeed they did. Aside from the responsiveness and accuracy of keyboard and mouse, Metroid Prime 3 created one of the best ways to play a first-person shooter, period. Although FPS games on the Wii were scarce before Prime 3 rolled around, well, they were scarce in general, they had point and turn controls down pat. Call of Duty 3 and Medal of Honor Vanguard both had their issues, but they laid out the groundwork for first-person controls on the Wii. Although you could aim your gun and move around with only some minor issues, the pacing of these games would often require slow, calculated shooting and movement. The only game to rectify this on the Wii would be Metroid Prime 3. Although the freeform movement and aiming allows for better accuracy and easy takedowns of flying enemies when on the move, the game still primarily focuses on its lock-on mechanic. 
However, this means that you can circle strafe around enemies and blast them with pot shots like the previous games, on top of having superior accuracy when necessary. This is a godsend, and it results in controls that feel fast, responsive, and ultimately, second nature. You can snap onto enemies while still having full control over your shots. You can quickly switch visors by holding the minus button and tilting the Wii Remote. It's so good. What I love most is that a lot of the game's bosses take advantage of being able to aim while locking on. Berserker Lords fire these balls of energy when you have to shoot and deflect, and while it's retaliating you can then strafe and jump around its attacks while aiming and shooting at its weak point. Meta Ridley's first fight directly tests your accuracy like this as well, as you aim for his weak points while shooting and deflecting his attacks. By the way, this is an incredible sequence. I can gush about so many of Prime 3's set pieces, but I'll save that for later. I know it seems odd to be raving about utilizing accuracy as a game design concept, but it's a big deal for a game on the Wii. Metroid Prime's core design was all about finding solutions during combat, and aiming was rarely a part of its design. So the fact that they were able to incorporate both into a seamless blend is phenomenal. Metroid Prime 3 feels so good to play because of its controls. You can refrain from using the lock-on while being attacked by multiple enemies, picking them off individually, selectively shoot a giant boss's weak points and completely disarm them while staying locked on and avoiding massive attacks by strafing. The works. If you've never played Metroid Prime with a Wii Remote and Nunchuck, it is absolutely something you should experience before you die. There's a lot of discussion to be had about immersing the player in a first-person shooter. You can do it through scripted sequences, clever presentation, and a fully interactive world like Half-Life 2. You can use virtual reality to train the player in the differences and distinctions in a weapon's functions. Or you could put the player behind the visor of Samus Aran, arm cannon on one side, grapple beam in the other. Uh, I should mention that Prime 3 also allows you to use the grapple beam to yank things. This is used in environmental puzzles, but it's also great for ripping an enemy's shield off them. I gotta tell you, this makes me feel so badass. Retro set the player up for projecting themselves onto Samus, but physically embodying her with the game's motion controls is a whole other ballgame. They've finally tuned these controls so that they suit fast-paced gameplay, destroying that slow-paced barrier for Wii shooters. This is easily the definitive way to play Metroid Prime. It's accessible, it evolves the game's combat and elevates its depth to new heights, and it's fun as hell. On the topic of accessibility, it's worth talking about the game's level design, because this is one of the most accessible Metroidvanias I've ever played. A lot of its rooms and areas are about puzzle solving. The best example I can use to summarize how this works is, in Metroid Prime 2, there was a room in Sanctuary Fortress that you gradually solved while branching off into other rooms. You'd fix the circuitry and a new path would open up. You'd solve that room, come back, fix the circuitry, rinse, repeat. It was puzzle after puzzle that led towards your primary objective. This occurs far more frequently in Prime 3, and I'm a fan. This shift means that resourcefulness is still on the table, but it's more about knowledge of your arsenal rather than pathfinding. These puzzles carry the game through the first portion, which is linear, and gradually branches out into pathfinding as you become accustomed to its design. Pathfinding becomes a huge part of the game once it asks you to retrieve three bombs spread throughout Skytown, and that's a great place to introduce a challenge like that. By that point, you should be able to find your way around and explore freely without getting terribly lost. And I respect that. It eases the player into an objective like this. And the game paces itself with rooms that focus on combat, platforming, hazards, and the like. The Pirate Homeworld is perhaps the best example of its seamless blend of puzzles, exploration, and combat. The level feels like one big puzzle, rather than a giant maze. You know where to go and how you're going to get there, it's about the practicality. Throughout this level they impede your progress with ruthless enemies and acid rain. You need to work towards that suit upgrade. The game is designed for linear progression, but it definitely allows you to branch off whenever you feel like it. When I first played Metroid Prime 3, I wondered how they would handle the connecting of different areas. 
we went from a rocky start in Prime 1 to a succinct design with Prime 2. What could they do to further improve the map design of Prime 3? Well, because the levels are so huge, they just decided to completely segment them. You visit the different planets in Prime 3 by activating landing pads for your ship, and you can bring your ship to each of them while on the planet as per your want. So rather than creating something needlessly complex, they decided to circumvent the pathfinding stresses through this method. After being frustrated with the backtracking in certain aspects of the previous games, this made me genuinely excited to revisit other planets and grab new power-ups. It didn't feel like an inconvenience as it may have in the other games, it's just part of the fun. For example, in Skytown you come across a landing pad as the game urges you to revisit Brio for a new upgrade. Sure enough, the abilities you've gained will open up an all-new, icy section of the level, and it's a hop, skip, and a ship right away. Of all the things that Metroid Prime 3 attempts to evolve, the narrative is perhaps the most impactful. In Metroid Prime 2, the log entries would have benefited from having voice acting. Hearing the fear in a soldier's voice in their final moments? It's part of the reason I asked some of my friends and members of the community to help participate in this video. I wanted to drive home how much that part of the game meant to me. Thankfully, this game has full voice acting for Samus's bounty hunter comrades and all of the Federation soldiers. This was a necessary step, because you don't get to spend a lot of time with them. After Dark Samus attacks the Hunters, you're all separated and the blast from her beam infects everyone with Phazon. Samus is basically on her own throughout the entire game, fighting to keep the Phazon from corrupting her entirely. And when its true nature comes to light, finding the other bounty hunters suddenly seems like a much more difficult task. You get a glimpse into their personalities and abilities on Valhalla and Norian, and that's all you have to go off of until you can confront them. Unfortunately, it's already too late for them. They've been completely taken over by Phazon, and you have no choice but to tear them down. I think the game is completely aware that you don't really have the time to form a bond with them at first, so they instead decide to have you connect with them through their boss fights. And I absolutely love that. You have to begrudgingly dodge Rundus' ice attacks, yank him down from his pillars, and knock him out of the air as he flies around on ice. Just like he did on Norian. All set to a badass battle theme that combines Prime's unique instrumentals with some electric guitar riffs thrown in there. In the end, he kills himself so that Dark Samus can't exert any further control over him. And yet, she still absorbs his energy. This becomes a recurring theme, and it really hurts to experience this. Dark Samus uses Gore for his energy, and Samus helplessly blasts at her. Much like Prime 2, this channeled a sense of vengeance. I wanted to end this. Gendreda's boss fight is insane. The character is known for her shape-shifting antics thanks to her introduction on Valhalla, but it's not until the pirate homeworld that we get one of the most memorable moments in the game. At first, the Federation soldier asks for your help in order to reach your objective. Nothing seems terribly off, but then the soldier brandishes his weapon. As it turns out, it was Gendreda all along. She shapeshifts into the other hunters, including Samus, flips around the arena, and is generally difficult to keep track of and shoot at. But it's an immensely rewarding fight. And that music, man, so good. I feel like this is the pinnacle of Metroid Prime 3's combat. I'm strafing around the arena like crazy, utilizing my knowledge and reflexes that I've developed, and physically shaking off Gandreda when she jumps on me. 
It's not one of the extravagant behemoths that attack you in the planet's seeds or across the other planets. It's just a fellow bounty hunter that has been corrupted. That's why the boss felt so memorable. Even her death scene foreshadows Samus' potential demise as Dark Samus floats away once more. I have no idea how Dark Samus was able to achieve this kind of brutal sentience, but it really does sting. These boss fights really drive the point home that Metroid Prime 3 is about saying goodbye. Achieving closure on this storyline, killing Dark Samus, and giving the Federation a thumbs up. And all things considered, it seems like this is a great place to close out the trilogy. So... What is wrong with this game? I mentioned accessibility harming this game in addition to benefiting it, so what do I mean by that? Well first, I know this is a low-hanging fruit, but I gotta mention it because I find it ridiculous. The arbitrary actions you have to perform with the motion controls in this game go from heightening player immersion to annoying the player, very quickly. They're all over the place and I got sick of them. Every single switch, password screen, energy cell socket, etc. It's so obnoxious and almost transforms the intelligent control scheme of Prime 3 into a gimmick. Secondly, there isn't any beam strategy present in this game. Each new beam you get replaces the last one. Your missiles get upgraded into ice missiles at some point, so you can still do the freeze them and blast them strategy, but that's it. It's kinda lame. But most egregious is Metroid Prime 3's blatant handholding at the cost of accessibility. There's a lot more to this topic than just walking in a straight line, so I'd like you to hear me out. I know I mentioned the game branching off from time to time, but that isn't enough to challenge your pathfinding overall. It's not that the game doesn't do it, it just doesn't do it enough. The vast majority of missile expansions can be found along your main path, or when you're backtracking over to a newly accessible area. They are at the very least fun to uncover and retrieve, but I can't say the same about the energy tanks. 10 of this game's 14 energy tanks can be found just barely off the beaten path, either behind a door or down a morph ball tunnel. I am not exaggerating, they are that easy to find. It's as if they're giving them to you. I can kind of understand where they were coming from when designing the game like this, however. After Samus becomes corrupted with Phazon, the Federation comes up with a way to harness its power. By holding plus, you can activate Hyper Mode, which deals a devastating amount of damage at the cost of an energy tank. That's why the energy tanks are pathetically easy to uncover. But that doesn't sit right with me. If Metroid Prime 2 taught me anything about something like this, it's that you should feel compelled to push yourself out of your comfort zone and seek these upgrades out. That's what has me miffed about the utilization of energy tanks in this game. Because of this, you can afford to use hyper mode liberally, even on veteran difficulty. You can roll around shocking enemies in the morph ball and blasting away bosses without any concern for your health most of the time. I feel bad for Gore. With hyper mode, you can melt him away. It's pitiful. The wrecked Valhalla ship can be explored later in the game, and your progression is entirely based on how many energy cells you were able to retrieve throughout the other levels. These energy cells essentially carry non-linear exploration in Prime 3, and if you were able to retrieve them all, you could continue to delve into the Valhalla and unearth even more secrets, including an energy tank or two. But by that point, you'll already have more than enough to deal with the game's final boss, so it isn't a perfect incentive, but it's the best the game has to offer. The game at least attempts something pretty cool for its final level that takes advantage of your collected energy tanks. Upon entering phase, your energy tanks are vented and you're permanently put into hyper mode. It constantly depletes and you can regenerate health with pickups. This is a brilliant way to encourage the player to go back and look for energy tanks in order to increase their chances of survival, but when most of the energy tanks in this game can be retrieved by simply opening a door with a new upgrade or rolling your morph ball through a tunnel, it kinda defeats the purpose a bit, doesn't it? It at least feels fantastic to fight the game's final boss. Dark Samus splitting into clones of herself, strafing around her attacks and dodging her beam, good stuff. Perhaps my favorite iteration of her to fight. 
and it's fitting that this is the last time we'll be seeing her. After that, all that's left is taking down the corrupted Aurora unit using everything you've learned in combat, and freeing the galaxy of Phazon once and for all. With that, the story of Metroid Prime comes to an end. I, uh, I, I, <laughs> I honestly don't know how to feel about this being the closing chapter of the trilogy. On one hand, its new ideas are fantastic and should have been introduced earlier. And its level design, progression, combat, and puzzle implementation is some of the best in a game of its kind. On the other hand, it holds your hand too often, it's far too linear, and its energy tank implementation is the game's fatal flaw, which in turn destroys the purpose of the final level and exploration as a whole. Metroid Prime 3 is a great game, don't get me wrong. It's an absolutely kick-ass freaking video game. But it felt like this game should have been the culmination of everything Retro has learned. It instead makes compromises at the price of accessibility. As a conclusion to the trilogy, I'd be lying if I said I was completely satisfied. And... I want more. Dear God, I want more. I miss this series, man. I miss the Prime Universe. I miss the feeling it gives me to explore and learn about the world. And I think Retro knew that something of that nature would occur. In the secret ending, Samus takes a moment to mourn the loss of her fellow bounty hunters. As she takes off into space, a mysterious ship follows behind her. If you've played Metroid Prime Hunters, you might notice that this ship's design and color scheme bear a striking resemblance to that of Silex. If you want answers, well, after nearly 13 years, that's all we've been able to hold on to. After Metroid Prime 3, the series entered its second Dark Age. With the third game's ending, the Metroid Prime series was left both concluded and open-ended at the same time. Retro had released three fantastic AAA games throughout the 2000s, and had gained quite a reputation in that time frame. Needless to say, it was time for a break. And for some, it was too stressful to stick around. After Metroid Prime 3 was released, several key developers left the company. Most notably Mark Pacini, director of all three Metroid Prime games, Todd Keller, the trilogy's art director, and the principal technology engineer, Jack Matthews. The three of them formed Armature Studios and worked together on ReCore, which was released nearly 10 years after Metroid Prime 3. Brian Walker, the trilogy's key producer, would also leave in 2012. While Retro Studios would receive further acclaim with their two Donkey Kong Country installments, behind closed doors, things weren't all sunshine and rainbows. From the very beginning, Retro Studios has been plagued by unhealthy working hours, horrible mismanagement, and a general lack of direction, which was accentuated in more recent years. Let's start at the beginning. Throughout this video, I've alluded to conditions at Retro being stressful. But let's get into specifics, why don't we? Leading up to Metroid Prime's release in November 2002, Retro employees were estimated to be working 80 to 100 hour work weeks. To this day, game developers still haven't been able to unionize and fight this kind of thing, and it was an even bigger issue when they didn't have a platform to speak up about it like they do now. Apparently, it took Nintendo six months to approve the first level they created, and by the time that happened, Retro had less than a year to finish the rest of the game. It was messy, and the stress only increased as time went on. With Metroid Prime 2, they only had less than two years to put the game out, and according to Kensuke Tanabe, the game was only 30% complete just three months before the November deadline. The cycle of crunch and long working hours are going to push anyone off the deep end. I, for one, would never be able to work like that, no matter how passionate I am about what I'm creating. 
It's not healthy, and it's absolutely unacceptable to be treating your employees like that. Thankfully, Nintendo has changed since then. I don't doubt that crunch time still exists within the company, but the decision to delay Animal Crossing New Horizons in order for developers to maintain a healthy work-life balance is something that I will forever respect them for. With that said, the horrible stress at Retro drove many developers out of the company. That's just an unavoidable fact. The team went on to develop Donkey Kong Country Returns, but that game only began to cohere five months before its release, according to an Iwata Asks interview. Thankfully, they were able to break the cycle with Tropical Freeze, in which they were given ample time to refine the game and create one of the best 2D platformers I have ever played, without working 100 hours per week. But since that game's release, Retro has worked in silence. No one really knew what they were working on for years. In terms of management, Retro also has an extremely shaky history there. Their original CEO, Jeff Spangenberg, was forced out of his position at Retro by Nintendo due to some slimy behavior. He was noted to be absent during Metroid Prime's development, and he didn't contribute much. Once Nintendo acquired the rest of his shares over the company, he was out. The most egregious thing he did while working at Retro was running a website off of their servers, which showcased various photos of him having pool parties with scantily clad women. The name of the website? Sinful Summer. Yeah, he's kind of a tool. Jeff later founded Top Heavy Studios and created a trivia game called The Guy Game, in which you answer questions correctly and expose women's breasts. That's already a pretty stupid concept for a commercial video game, but as it turns out, one of the women in the game was actually underage at the time the game was being filmed, and she didn't know what she was being depicted in. So, <laughs> Jeff is probably up to his ears in lawsuits. But he's also probably a millionaire thanks to his entrepreneuring in the video game industry, so I bet he doesn't care. Since his departure, things were going smoothly in terms of management. However, accusations from anonymous former employees have lobbed complaints at management in recent years since they've been working on... something since 2014 and still have nothing to show for it. There were rumors of Kensuke Tanabe and Retro not being on good terms after his departure with Tropical Freeze. Apparently, some employees likened him to Gordon Ramsay on Hell's Kitchen, and he also wouldn't accept anyone challenging his creative decisions. Tanabe-san's departure from Retro, followed by him saying he wasn't sure what Retro was working on in 2015, leads me to believe that Retro was indeed suffering from a lack of direction. So until 2019, that was where Retro Studios stood. But what about the Metroid series as a whole? Well, things were initially looking bright. There was a teaser for a DS game called Metroid Dread in one of Prime 3's log entries, but to this day, we still haven't seen anything of it. Perhaps it was transformed or rebooted into something bigger, and we might see it someday. But it really sucks that we weren't able to play it considering the hot streak Metroid was on at the time. Instead, Metroid Other M was released in 2010. I won't go into specifics about why that game is hot garbage today, but it launched the series into its second hiatus and Metroid fans like to pretend it doesn't exist. This silence on Metroid's future lasted for five years until E3 2015 rolled around. Nintendo's conference that year lives in infamy. Although the puppet skits were cute, their lineup was god-awful. At the time, I was excited about Star Fox Zero, Triforce Heroes, and Super Mario Maker. But Animal Crossing Amiibo Festival felt like a slap in the face, Breath of the Wild, then known as Zelda U, was not mentioned at all, and perhaps most infuriatingly, they had the balls to announce Metroid Prime Federation Force, a spin-off co-op shooter that had little to do with anything Metroid-related after five years of nothing. The game ended up being serviceable, but it was a commercial failure because, well, of course it was. <laughs> None of my friends bought it, and the game felt completely soulless to me. So, the Metroid fanbase went back to waiting. 
In 2016, the 30th anniversary of the series came and went without much acknowledgement from Nintendo. So the fans took it upon themselves to celebrate. An independent game developer known as Dr. M64 Online released a remake of Metroid 2, known as AM2R, or another Metroid 2 remake. Incidentally, this was one of the best games I played in 2016. It was amazing. It felt like something Nintendo could have made, and it was made by one person over the course of a decade. But of course, we can't have nice things. Nintendo has since refrained from doing things like this, but back then it was perceived as scummy. And they did it all the time. It was in their legal right to take the game down at any point, but they instead waited until the game was released after a decade for them to file a DMCA against the project. Total dick move. This conversation is old news at this point, as something of this magnitude hasn't happened in ages, and they've also lifted restrictions and claims on YouTube content, so I'm not going to bother roasting them for it. You can probably find a download link floating around somewhere if you'd like to play AM2R today, and I recommend you do so if you haven't already. It's one of the best Metroid games I have ever played, and it's not even an official game. During this absence of support for the Metroid series, the Nintendo Switch presentation was broadcast in January of 2017. Reggie was once again asked about dormant Nintendo IPs, but this time, he gave people hope. In his words. So earlier today, I got asked about Mother 3. Maybe you can ask me about Metroid. Look, again, I am proud as an executive with Nintendo to say that we look at all of the boards and all of the comments, and we really have a good understanding of what our consumers want. And believe me, we take that to heart as we work to create content. So, I have nothing to announce. Here but we are aware that there are some key IP that consumers just can't wait for the next true installment in that franchise's legacy. Suffice it to say, we're aware of it. And talk to me in a year, and let's look back and see what's happened. People took it with a grain of salt, not thinking much of it. Then E3 2017 came along, and our world was turned upside down. Oh, now we're in space. There's not a lot... It's in space. Blast ball. Oh my fucking god, are you so- <laughs> Whoa! Holy shit! Oh my god, oh, are you I serious wanna... right now? No, 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 they are not- Are they actually- Wait. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my- Yes! Oh my god! I gotta speak for that. <laughs> oh, they did it. Okay, they've just won. They won. <laughs> Against all odds, not only was Metroid Prime 4 actually being made, but a new 2D Metroid was being released later that year. A remake of Metroid 2 that both gave context to their DMCA takedown, and also introduced concepts that I'm willing to bet will further evolve the Metroid formula in a new and exciting direction. But seriously though, that logo was enough to make me scream in excitement. Because it meant that not only was Nintendo willing to listen, but they were also willing to make damn sure that they didn't disappoint. They could have just left the Return of Metroid with their 3DS remake and called it a day, but no, they wanted to do something extra special. Unfortunately, Retro Studios wasn't in charge. It was heavily rumored that it was being developed by Bandai Namco Singapore via some sort of experimental ad hoc development process, but in the end, this fell through. Nintendo wasn't happy with how the game was turning out, and they started from scratch after a year and a half of development. With this announcement came some good news, however. Retro Studios was taking over. After years of directionless work on games that may or may not be released, Retro were going to make this game and they were going to do it right. In the months that followed, they went on a hiring spree looking for experienced developers. Only time will tell how this game will turn out, but since only a few members of the core Metroid Prime team remain at the company, the new team will have to study hard. 
For the time being, I will remain cautiously optimistic. What we have now is a trilogy of games that have their own ups and downs, but they demonstrate how Retro Studios was able to grow over the years. They went from single-handedly defining Metroid in a 3D space, to refining that formula and creating something that goes beyond the Metroid moniker, to creating one of the most accessible and streamlined Metroid games ever. And I mean well when I say that. All three of these games have something to offer. They're so good that when I have an urge to replay Metroid Prime, I play all three of them back to back. I think Nintendo realized this would happen, and that's why we have the Metroid Prime Trilogy Collection on the Wii. With Prime 3's superior control scheme being used in the other games, it feels absolutely seamless. It's such a great way to experience the series. I don't know how to end this video. When I started writing, I wanted to tell everyone the complete story of Metroid Prime. How it began, where its defining characteristics came from, how Retro utilized them, and where it ended up. But I'm struggling to find the biggest takeaway from all this. The games did a lot for the industry, and Metroidvanias with a Z-axis are not in short supply these days. Dark Souls and the whole Souls-like genre tend to utilize this kind of level design due to its progression structure, and I'd say that's a pretty big deal. But I think Metroid Prime's lasting impact comes from the way the games made us feel. I remember being terrified by the darkness of Chozo Ruin's depths, being angry at Dark Samus impeding my progress, wanting to avenge the hunters that I was forced to kill, watching Ridley fly over Fendrana Drifts, and so much more. This was on top of everything it did well. The design of the games came together beautifully and kept us interested through its atmosphere and storytelling. They felt like true adventures, and they would have only been possible with the shifted perspective. That's why Prime feels unique against the rest of the series, and that's why I'll keep coming back to them for as long as I live. This is also where you come in. Prime 4 is coming out eventually, and I want to know, what do you find most compelling about these games? After all, what I've discussed in this video is just my opinion. I want to know what the world thinks. Much like Half-Life or Pikmin or Zelda or whatever I cover on this channel, I believe discussion is how Retro Studios will recover from their downtime and channel that lost Metroid Prime energy. Discussion really is how we keep the memory of the series alive. And with that, I've been Liam Triforce, and I'd like to thank you for watching. This is Samus Aran, signing off.